and welcome to the other side of midnight. This is Kinthea, and it appears I will be your host tonight. We've got a really exciting show. First, I want to mention that our dear Richard C. Hoagland was called away on a very exciting meeting. You can only guess. And uh, so he asked me to step in for him. I'm thrilled to be on this show with our fabulous guests, Kelly M., Walter Jenkins, Georgia Lambert, and myself. And it's going to be an amazing evening following on the show that we had last night with uh, Professor Chandra Wickrama Singh um, regarding life coming from the universe to planet Earth. So our topic tonight is going to be the question of our science and higher consciousness eternally at odds. And before I... uh, go deeply into it. I just, for those who don't know, I'm going to introduce myself and our guests. Um, So as many of you know, I'm trained as an artist and uh, my mentors and muses have been actually hyperdimensional. As a producer of The Other Side of Midnight, I frequently have interesting conversations with other pioneers of the future, not to mention a global community of membership in Club 19.5. I've served as the artistic director for the Enterprise Mission Mars Project, and I've worked closely with Richard C. Holin and other Enterprise Mission researchers. I was the first to sculpt the incredibly controversial face on Mars, followed by numerous sequential sculptures as the new data came in. And... I recognize that we're in a new paradigm shift and we need new tools for these potent times. And this is why we're having this show tonight. I'm really excited to introduce Kelly M. to you. She was on the show briefly last night. Uh, She loves to talk science, history, and stories. She's a contributor to Dr. Joseph Farrell's GizaDeathStar.com website. Kelly has a degree focused in history and philosophy of science, economics, and physics. Kelly attended Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism and earned a certificate of science writing, was an editor for several high-technology publications, is a professional-level musician and aspiring storyteller using the tools of fiction. Kelly is a board member of Sam... Samden Ling, a Buddhist group that practiced Nyingma Mayayana Buddhism, which includes Dogchen and Barayana practices, most especially heart essence of the vast expanse, as well as Chad, the practice of encountering and satisfying negative forces. She first encountered Buddhism working with Lama Tulsrim Alion from Tara Mandala in Colorado in 2004. Kelly works in the technology field and holds patents in personal management and computer security. Welcome, Kelly. I'm so glad to have you on the show. I'm happy to be back. Nice to be with you. Nice to have you here. So this conversation was born out of a conversation that came from another show where uh, Richard and I were having a discussion about consciousness from non-corporeal beings. And you called me up and you proposed a really introduce, interesting show. And I said, oh, let's do it. Let's do it. So um, I'd like to turn this over to you. I know you put a great deal of thought into this and see where we go with this. Well, yeah, I'm happy to take the reins uh, for a while. And uh, what I wanted to talk about first um, is, you know, there is a there is a belief uh, in the world, uh, the world of our collective minds, that uh, science and religion are uh, diametrically opposite to one another. And uh, th- this is an incredibly dangerous uh, perception, uh, not only to uh, the practice of religion, but also to the practice of science. And so uh, as we you know, started talking about this, I began thinking about you know, all the different uh, you know, physicists and other sciences uh, work I've encountered in my college career 
and started to put together some thoughts on this particular topic. And but before I wanted to, since we're talking about religion and science, I wanted to establish an intention for tonight's discussion. And uh, my intention is that we find that we can use both pillars of science and uh, of divinity, spiritual nature, uh, to advance the cause of both and to advance the cause of civilization. So with respect to that, I would like to talk a little bit about various uh, physicists and uh, all of them, in fact, are uh, Nobel Prize winners. Uh, they're the best in the in the field uh, over the course of the uh, 20th century. And to bring some of their thoughts, I have uh, specific quotes from these folks that I'd like to bring uh, to the attention of the audience. And also um, to talk then uh, moving on from their work into a discussion of religion and science uh, in history. Uh, and then move on to discussion of how uh, people can, whether they're atheist, whether they're Christian, whether they're uh, Buddhist or whatever their particular practice, Hindu practices they may have, uh, where they can bring these, uh, you know, concepts of spirituality and, and the divine into their work in science. Uh, and also that religionists, uh, people who, you know, proceed from religion as their primary basis, can understand that science is not uh, diametrically opposed uh, to uh, to the you know science at the highest levels, I should say, is not um, ignorant of the benefits of uh, the approaches to the divine. So, so I thought it would be. Uh, really great to start out with uh, discussing the work of David Bohm. Uh, David Bohm, uh, let me just pull up some information on him for you. Uh, David Bohm was born uh, in 1917. Uh, he was a one of the most significant theoretical physicists uh, last century, and he, but he was also a rebel, uh, a kind rebel. Uh, who contributed many, many unorthodox ideas, many of which are still being uncovered and validated. Uh, people generally found David Bohm uh, in the physics community uh, not to be a great mathematician. He was, uh, you know, they often found uh, they would take his theories and his equations and they would uh, process them uh, and work out the math and they would find uh, all these mistakes in his work. So they would have to spend hours uh, you know, correcting his math. And when they were done, they find out he was right after all. So he was, uh, <laughs> so he was, uh, he was smarter on an intuitive level than he was on a mathematical level, but you know, he's not the only one. Uh, <laughs> and Einstein often said that he was really, really, you know, pretty weak at math. So, you know, it's something that, uh, you know, all these scientists are struggling with all the time. In fact, there's a great story about Einstein when the uh, general relativity theory was being tested in South Africa. A student walked into his office in, uh, in Germany and said, Dr. Einstein, I'm having terrible problems with my math. Can you help me? And he said, oh, math just gives me nothing but trouble. And she said, the secretary gave me this telegram to hand to you. And <laughs> And so, you know, the telegram gets handed over and Einstein says, no, no, you open it. I already know what it says. And they open up the telegram and it basically it's found that the light bent around a, a And they were able to prove that general relativity was uh, was accurate. Uh, actually, it was, wow. the orbit of, it was the orbit of Mercury. It was the orbit of Mercury. But anyway, so, you know, physicists struggle with math all the time. And so, you know, everybody can understand why that's true because we've all encountered math in one one uh, frame or another. But to get back to uh, to our thesis for the evening, um, David Bohm, uh, you know, was really interested in the meaning of, of nature and the meaning of how human beings, uh, at, you know, uh, participate within this uh, dynamic wholeness of the universe. And uh, he was also very, very concerned about uh, how science is practiced as a social discipline. And he, uh, on, on many occasions, talked about how uh, once people let their guards down, that they could uh, begin to engage in much more meaningful dialogues instead of having conflict, which often occurs in academic disciplines. And he ran across a guy named uh, Krishna, Krishna Murti, who was an Indian uh, 
theosophist. And for those that are not familiar with uh, theosophy, it was uh, founded by an Austrian uh, philosopher named Rudolf Steiner. And uh, Bohm interacted with Krishnamurti, who actually eventually left theosophy to pursue his own researches. And uh, uh, it was very interesting what uh, what uh, Krishnamurti's major discovery was. And this is what David Bohm had to say about, uh, about Krishnamurti. He said, we probed into the nature of space and time and of the universal, both with regard to external nature and with regard to mind. But then we went on to consider the general disorder and confusion that pervades the consciousness of mankind. It is here that I encountered what I feel to be Krishnamurti's major discovery. What he was seriously proposing is that all this disorder in human consciousness, which is the root cause of such widespread sorrow and misery, and which prevents human beings from properly working together, has its root in the fact that we are ignorant of the general nature of our own processes of thought. Or to put it differently, it may be said that we do not see what is actually happening when we are engaged in the activity of thinking. So really what Krishnamurti uh, and this also comes out of Buddhist philosophy, are saying that we need to observe more about how our processes of thinking are working both collectively and individually. And this is something that um, that I think everybody can associate with in some capacity in their own lives, that we don't really take the time to examine the way that we think and how we're thinking. Well, I remember uh, when I was reading Krishnamurti, I was so struck by how he would turn things uh, in an unexpected twist. You know, he was always like flipping you. You'd think you were going one direction, then he'd flip it and you'd say, oh my goodness, you know, like he would talk about laziness and and following the thought that, well, you know, it wasn't really about that. And I I just, uh, he was one of those signposts for me, like, okay, there's definitely something more here than what we've been taught before. Yeah, that's very interesting. And so, you know, with, uh, with Krishnamurti, you know, as our initial thought, uh, Bohm went on to say in uh, his, uh, his, a dialogue that was recorded in, um, in the in 1985 shortly before his death he said i went to a meeting and in the beginning people were expressing fixed positions which they were tending to defend but later it became clear to maintain the feeling of friendship in the group it was much more important to to establish a friendly relationship than to hold any position such friendship has an impersonal quality in the sense that it's establishment does not depend on a close personal relationship between the participants. A new kind of mind begins to come into being, which is based on the development of a common meaning that is constantly transforming in the process of the dialogue. People are no longer primarily in opposition, nor can they be said to be interacting. Rather, they are participating in this pool of common meaning, which is capable of constant development and change. In this development, the group has no pre-established purpose, though at each moment, a purpose that is free to change may reveal itself. The group thus begins to engage in a new dynamic relationship in which no speaker is excluded and in which no particular content is excluded. Thus, we have only begun to explore the possibilities of dialogue in the sense so indicated. But going further along these lines would open up the possibility of transforming not only the relationship between people, but even more, the very nature of consciousness in which these relationships arise. So when we consider uh, the concept of religion and science in the light of what uh, David Bohm has just told us, we believe that a dialogue uh, between science and and the divine arts, uh, you know, has been going on sort of underneath the radar for a very long time, but that doesn't seem to transmit itself 
to the scientific, uh, you know, uh, dialogue or narrative that's predominant in the culture. We see a lot of emphasis in in the scientific establishment, uh, a defensive establishment, which says that there's nothing that we can include here that isn't logical, rational, mathematical, or provable in a material sense. But that's really going against what the most famous Nobel Prize winners of the last century in science were actually saying and what they were telling us. So I think we may have lost uh, you know, a thread or road that we were traveling on, which which held uh, together not only science, but also, you know, drove its very processes. And so, you know, when we think about what David Bohm told us about how people relate when they let their defenses down and they let go of their particular egos, we can see that that a whole new way of, of interacting that advances human consciousness can take place. Wow. So, um, so here we are and I'm curious, like, where does that fit for, for the everyday person where we are find ourselves in these boxes that this, um, Traditional science, and I want to say, when I say traditional, I mean not the more expansive thinking thinkers, but the more regimented thinkers. How do we like break free of this box? Well, I think that uh, I think we have to go. We have to encounter. Uh, scientists need to encounter, uh, you know, the highest levels of. Of uh, theological, uh, the theological arts, and the theological arts need to encounter the highest levels of science. There is a way. There's two ways to do it. One is to a top-down model, which I've just described, and the other model that could be, you know, or should be utilized is a is a model that develops from, uh, from you know the 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 awakening understanding that nobody needs to be afraid. Uh, we have a lot of money and ego on both sides. We have power interceding in these relationships. And we also have, uh, to an extent, we have agendas which are driving both audiences uh, into their own um, you know, pools of identity, if you will. Mm-hmm. Well, can you give me like some, some example of what you're yeah, in a I practical wanna- way? Yeah, so let me let me just step out of science for a minute and talk about the uh, liberal author uh, and you know liberal uh, uh, writer uh, Naomi Wolf. Naomi Wolf was you know a darling of the liberal set in New York, and you know she was you know considered a darling of the left uh, for many many years. Wrote very interesting books um, that you know, discussed her socialist uh, libertarian philosophy. And then in 2006 or seven, she began to see the division that was taking place in the country. And so she went on this sort of tour where she encountered people who were, you know, uh, against abortion and people who uh, believed in gun rights. And she went and encountered all the, I guess we would call them the, the Hillary Clinton deplorables. <laughs> and she went and she dialogued with all of these folks. And she came at, back with a, a profoundly changed understanding of those particular groups of people and what they care about. And she ultimately wrote a book about it called uh, uh, Give Me Liberty, which was about you know her encounter with these various groups. And so really, I mean, I, th- I have to say that everyone who's in these particular disciplines needs to open up their minds to the fact that that, you know, just because you don't agree with what you think someone else might say, that doesn't relieve you from the possibility uh, or from the responsibility of developing a, a true understanding of what that thing or that group or that idea is. And we live in a world now where people are encouraged to have opinions on things they haven't studied. 
and everybody has an opinion, everybody's free to express it. We have First Amendment rights, you know, for the most part, and we're allowed to express our thinking. But in reality, as, as things, how things actually work is that people are feeling empowered to take positions on things which they don't understand. And which creates a lot of confusion. <laughs> it creates confusion, it creates tension, it creates conflict, it even yeah. creates violence in some instances. Mm-hmm. And so I think that people need to be comfortable saying, I haven't studied that, I haven't formed an opinion. Mm-hmm. And even the opinion, I think, is a trap, really. Yeah, it's a fr- it's a freezing, if you will. It's a, mm-hmm. a solidification the the adoption of a position which then one has to defend, right? Right. And it's sort of it excludes the rest of reality. Like if we're entrenched in one position, it's excluding the rest. Right. And to get back to our quantum physicists that were hanging out there, um, you know, there are things that are tangible that we know that we understand. And there are things that are intangible, things that are finite and things that are infinite. We know that the mass of the earth is something that's finite. We know uh, that uh, pi, the calculation of pi is theoretically infinite. And so there are things that we can know and things that we, uh, we that are difficult to know. And there are different methods for dealing with finite and infinite. And in a sense, the challenge between science and religion is, a, is a, an encounter, is a conflict between uh, ideas of the finite and man's relationship to, or humankind's relationship to the infinite. For example, you know, and here's another David Bone quote. We probed into the nature of space and time and of the universal, both in regard to external nature. Oh, sorry, I'm at the wrong quote. Mm-hmm. The field of the, of the finite is all that we can see, hear, touch, remember, and describe. This field is basically that which is manifest or tangible. The essential quality of the infinite, by contrast, is its subtlety, its intangibility. This quality is conveyed in the word spirit, whose root meaning is wind or breath. This suggests an invisible but pervasive energy to which the manifest manifest world of the finite responds. This energy or spirit infuses all living beings, and without it, any organism must fall apart into its constituent elements. That which is truly alive in the living being is this energy of spirit, and this never is never born and never dies. Well, that's a really transcendental quote, I must say. It's sublime and um, highly spiritual. Yeah, but he would not describe himself necessarily as a spiritualist. Yeah, I get that. Himself I as get a scientist, that. right? I get that. But that's just the beauty of it is that the scientist is recognizing the uh, the ephemeral. The uh, it's not really ephemeral. It's the non corporeal, the out of time and out of space, but existing everywhere at once. The field. Yeah, but it's almost as if uh, if, if the infinite brings to the these constituent elements, I mean, we're 90% water, 92% water, I think. And, you know, and then we're just a, you know, a couple, five pounds of chemicals. <laughs> and so, you know, we, we're effectively, you know, uh, a, a, a lattice structure, you know, a, a water tower, if you will. And so, you know, when we understand, you know, what we are actually physically, that immediately brings to us the suggestion that where what is the essence that makes us and the animals and all the other living systems what is the thing that makes us alive and the religions have always been saying over time that there's a spirit embedded in us and we'll we'll talk a little bit about ancient religions in in a, in a little while but the whole idea is that that the the chemistry or electromagnetism of a normal body doesn't explain how we can exist, how we can, as Einstein put it, you know, the most inconceivable thing about the universe is that we are here conceiving it. Mm. Mm -hmm. So each of us also independently is conceiving it and we're conceiving it collectively. And... Mm. Where where would you go with that? I mean, like, 
we're conceiving it, but are we conceiving it consciously, unconsciously, both? How do we use this as a tool? Well, yeah, I mean, well, I want to get to that a little bit later because uh, we, the way that we use uh, uh, this understanding is something that we could probably spend six months talking about. <laughs> I mean, it's a journey more than it is an answer, mm -hmm. uh, I would say. But one of the first things that has to happen for us to get to that place is that we have to, you know, if, if our intention is to get there, to get to a, onto that path and take us to the point where science and religion can can recognize the value in each other and not take it as a as a dialectical uh, you know uh, conflict of opposites. Uh, we have to be able to you know to balance our our thinking and by balancing our brains between left and right brain the the word logical side of the brain and the imaginary symbolic side of the brain need to talk more even within ourselves we can't solve these problems without solving our own problem and that is to be able to 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 create a, a synthetic overlay an analogical overlay between both these particular sides of the brain and Bohm actually has a good quote on that too. Okay, I I'm also looking at here a show question from someone that fits in here. It says uh, this is coming from Rick. Says is science even possible without higher consciousness? I don't think so. No. Where else do you think all the hunches and inspirations that lead towards important inventions and discoveries come from, if not from a higher consciousness? Well, yeah, and he, he would be in good company with all the Nobel Prize winners that I researched in order to, to prepare the dialogue for tonight. You know, um, you know, if people can get past their insecurity... Uh, then they can see that metaphysics. I mean, if you look even at at uh, Newton, Leibniz, uh, and Descartes, were all uh, highly religious people, uh, and uh, Descartes probably the least among them, but he was a, a, a sincere Catholic, and and so the service to a higher purpose was an inherent part of what they were doing when they were doing, you know, inventing physics and calculus. Mm -hmm. um, so I absolutely agree with the, with the, his sense that, that you, you cannot progress in any meaningful way without a metaphysical uh, basis, as well as the uh, actions of, uh, of the heart mind. Yes, and I want to explore that. We're going to be coming soon to the break, but we have just about like another minute here, and then we can go more in depth on that topic. Um, I am really looking uh, and appreciating this uh, background that you're bringing to us, and I'm looking forward to seeing how each of us individually apply these um, understandings and and hearing how we can tap into that awareness and bring it into our present experience. Yeah, we're going to catch that at the other side of the break. Coming up on the break now, dear. Thank you.
You're listening to the first hour of The Other Side of Midnight. Be sure to catch our complete live show every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, for a full three hours of this kind of exploration. And be sure to visit theothersideofmidnight.com as you listen so you can follow our special Radio with Pictures guest page simultaneously. The Kinthea, our hardworking producer, specifically prepares to illustrate the topics discussed each show. Why? Because there is vital additional information on that Radio with Pictures guest page that I assure you will immeasurably enhance your understanding and enjoyment of what our guests are describing. I mean, would you rather listen to a guest talk about NASA images of ancient artifacts on Mars or simultaneously be able to follow the official NASA images showing you, as you're listening, the ruins? If you'd like to listen at your convenience to all our shows, including our unique Radio with Pictures feature, please visit theothersideofmidnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. Okay, what do you get with your Club 19.5 membership, besides helping the show literally stay on the air? Well, first of all, you will exclusively, this is not available to the general public, enjoy our enhanced ad-free podcast, courtesy of Chris Bell automatically downloading all the latest The Other Side of Midnight shows directly to your favorite podcast device so you can listen when you want to. Further, as a full Club 19.5 member, you will gain exclusive access to our The Other Side of Midnight 24-7 chat server, what I can't help calling the Open Hailing Frequencies Room, which is available only to members 24-7. Now, during the show, that's where you will find other 19.5 members and sometimes even members of the bridge crew, my guests, and even me uh, when I have time. Regardless, you can always relay live questions to me during the show just by going to the open hailing frequencies room. Of course, when we're not on the air with your 19.5 membership, you can visit our club 19.5 radio archives anytime and download all our shows directly to your computer which will automatically provide you a screen size that allows you to really examine the remarkable images Kinthea posts for each show. Okay, here's where I need to get kind of super serious. Club 19.5 is how our show is currently solely supported. In my hopefully not vain attempt to keep commercials to a minimum, if you're concerned about keeping us on the air, If you want to hear information that has been vetted far more than perhaps any other show, the best way to ensure that is to join Club 19.5 and get your friends and family to join too. And if you don't know already, when I drop by open hailing frequencies, you can even ask me directly what the ultimate meaning is behind 19.5, literally the most exclusive club in the world. Please join me and my interesting guests on this very stream every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, and be sure to come back and listen to our live three-hour shows. Thanks for listening, and now, back to the show. Welcome back. This is Kinthea filling in for Richard C. Hoagland tonight. And on our call, we have uh, Kelly M. We're discussing our science and higher consciousness eternally at odds. And Kelly is like just wowing me with the background of how science and consciousness have been weaving back and forth and where they departed and where they've come together. So, Kelly. Please continue, dear. Well, one of the things that uh, the the previous comment that we uh, question and comment that we read in is that not only does the the exclusion of uh, 
the divine arts in the sciences, you know, cause uh, social strife in both professions, um, but it also, uh, and in civilization in general, but it actually also makes it so that science itself cannot really function very well. And so, you know, David Bohm also talked about this. He said, my suggestion is that at each state of science, the proper order of operation of the mind requires a grasp of what is known, not only in formal logical mathematical terms, but also intuitively in images, feelings, and even poetic use of language. This kind of overall way of thinking is not only a fertile source of new theoretical ideas, it is needed for the human mind to function in a generally harmonious way, which could in turn make possible an orderly and stable society. So what Bohm is telling us is that the science can't really work unless, of course, higher consciousness is allowed into the equation. And he's also telling us that people's brains don't work very well when they've been put into this pattern of uh, of having to deny uh, their higher consciousness. Well, you know, one thing that this is like, reminding me of, and it's, it's a follow-up on the show last night with uh, Professor Chandra, is that um, I've throughout my life I've gotten along really great with scientists. I'm not a scientist, but that artistic ability to be able to perceive in a very intuitive way has served me well. And uh, one of the things that I noticed uh, when listening to Wick Rama Singh was that uh, he was talking about how the outer space is just full of life. It's permeated with life and is coming to our planet. And back 20, 30, even, uh, yeah, more than 30 years, I don't want to give myself away, but a long time ago I was doing art and uh, some of them are on the page there. One is called um, Cosmic Birth and it's, it's about coming from the void, this, this birth and the, and the star seed. And so these impressions as an artist that were coming to me intuitively were about the idea that life is throughout the universes. And it was before I studied anything that would make me even think along those lines. And what I always find interesting is that in the process of art, Years later, it'll be revealed to me, oh, well, that's what that painting was telling me. It's like it's a way of, it's a tool that I use to perceive these other realms. And I feel like um, that's one of the reasons I get along really well with scientists. That makes perfect sense. You know, Joseph Farrell just texted me and he said that, you know, what we're talking about is science as an art form and not as effectively as some dry uh, you know, unemotional discipline. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so what you're getting at is you're getting at the pattern of the unconscious mind uh, revealing hidden or what Bohm would call the implicate uh, relationships that are, you know, invisible to us. And for those people that don't understand uh, what Bohm meant by implicate, think of a computer screen, uh, you know, hosting a video game on the screen. You know, the, the operator of the game sees the explicit video game taking place. They're, they're moving their mouse around, they're moving their game, their game boy around and they're, you know, moving around the screen. But what's happening in the implicate realm is that there's a computer processor and memory and various pieces of hardware moving electrons and plasmas around to create the the explicit experience for the user. And both of those things are necessary for the activity to take place. But neither one is really, uh, neither one is really, uh, you know, understandable to the other. The player of the video game doesn't understand what the computer is doing and the computer doesn't understand what the user is doing. Mm -hmm. Which, which also brings me, I just want to like touch on something else you said when you you mentioned the unconscious mind, you see, um, my my brain may be unconscious to what the superconscious mind is aware of, and I feel as though the information that I'm tapping into when I'm doing art or music or whatever, um, that that actually is more conscious than than what I consider to be conscious. 
I, I, I don't see it as being unconscious. I see my waking state as being more unconscious than, than where I'm getting the information from. Right. But if you were in the realm of mind where you were, <coughs> excuse me, if you were in the realm of mind where you were holding rigidly to, to patterns of thought that, you know, that, you know, a, a rigid ideology, for example, with like a communism or, or a cult, uh, you know, philosophy, that kind of thought leaves no room at all. Uh, you know, it takes you into the realm what Bohm would have called absolute necessity. Hmm. In that room, that that kind of thought leaves no room for any other possibility, yeah, emotionally or physically. And what Bohm thought was that it takes a stance in our feelings, in our bodies, and indeed in our whole culture of holding back or resisting. And he said that this stance implies that under no circumstances whatsoever can we allow ourselves to give up certain things or to change them. And we see that in the in the in the body politic today. We see people getting holding to rigid patterns of thought that have built up over a long time. Mm-hmm. Actually, yeah, we see it in science and we see it also in, in the religions, in the dogma. And we see it in, in politics, we see mm-hmm. it in uh, in economics, we see it in in, uh, in 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 a variety of different realms today. It's really a kind of a, a cultural uh, pandemic, if you will, uh, that's infecting all the kinds of different areas of uh, of our civilization. Mm-hmm. And, that's what uh, I love about this show. I love that's what I love about the other side of midnight is that we are opening those boxes. And always looking for something that's uh, a bigger and more expansive view. Thank you. Yeah, and Bohm has said something. Uh, um, and Bohm said something also that's very interesting in this particular realm. He said that uh, when the functions of thought went wrong, it was when the principal source of insecurity came to be the operation of thought itself. Hmm. So people have become insecure in their thinking. And this insecurity in thinking, you know, of course, extends into the sciences. I mean, I know a, a very high level executive in biotech. And if he was listening to this conversation, he would be, you know, throwing tomatoes at his computer screen. <laughs> and wouldn't open his mind to, to looking at it at all. And he's a very, very dear friend of mine. I love the man. But at the same time, you know, it's incredibly, uh, you know, limiting. And I also think it probably impacts his science, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, well, those you know, leaps aren't there. I mean, if you don't have that, how do you make the leap? Right. You can't. Yeah. You just repeat what's been said before. Right. And a, a, a totally different model would be to move toward the model where the felt body, they, the physical experience, both in the gut, and this gets into uh, Buddhism, which talks about these things, in the gut, in the heart, in the throat, in the, in the, this, the mind as a sense. Uh, it's all one process. It's not like we're thinking and we're feeling. It's like we're thinking and feeling. Mm-hmm. It's not that our hearts are just talking. It's that our guts are talking too. Yeah. It's, Right. So the whole body is just one single process is what Bohm thought. Right. And it's wrong to and misleading to break it up into individual thoughts and feelings. Uh, it, it's it's much better to say, uh, as Bohm thought, that what we're really dealing with is a, is a holistic system that we're all interacting with and being aware of. And so the way people commonly use the word of a system, it usually, in Bohm's view, is where the parts are mutually uh, interdependent, but not only for their mutual action, but for their meaning and their existence. So the whole idea that we we have to, you know, or that we can benefit from, actually better than saying we have to, that we can benefit from understanding that all of us, all of our metaphysical, physical, spiritual awareness, uh, emotions, uh, all of these things are an essential part of the tool set of the scientist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's also making me think about the heart math when you were talking about how the energy of all the systems, you know, the, the heart is radiating a, a magnetic field 5,000 times more powerful than the brain. And so 
these are all these are communications that are happening with each other on a nonverbal level where information is being exchanged all the time. And, and the heart also has its own memory. I mean, I've read the stories where people had heart transplants and they they actually had memories popping mm-hmm. into their mind uh, that were not their own. They were the memories of the persons whose heart they received. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so we, we we know that this is in fact the case uh, because we can we can validate it. But of course, you know, anecdotal information is being drummed out of uh, science. It's even being drummed out of medicine. And of course, the fundamental thing in medicine is, you know, the most important thing a doctor does is listen to the narrative, the narrative of the patient. And but when we push uh, out the holistic uh, quality that we the wholeness that is inherently us, we, you know everybody loses. The doctor loses. The patient loses. Everything gets uh, damaged, and that's kind of the situation we find ourselves in today. And it's not just it's not just bone, but also other you know uh, physicists of the era, like Niels Bohr. You know, were also very very concerned about about. Uh, about the, you know, the emerging, and I don't want to get into, you know, the politics of it, but the idea of the continuous revolution uh, of overturning old doctrines, which has become, uh, you know, manifest in, in untold ways throughout all of Western civilization, that this particular, you know, uh, revolutionary consciousness is all about out with the old and with the new when the you know the new isn't fully cooked it's like you know here we have this you know f- you know cooked you know steak and potatoes that we've had for 500 years and let's just put this uncooked thing in and we'll, <laughs> and we'll just play with it until we get it right <laughs> and uh, that's an incredibly uh you know irresponsible uh thing mm-hmm. for people to be doing you know i, I I think I was in that realm, in that in that ideology for you know for decades, because that's you know that's what we were all fed, and I've come to recognize that you know you know human beings are really not that different than we were even thousands of years ago. The only thing that's really different is how we're patterned by the culture that we live in, and so we have to also look hmm. back into history and see in history uh, the fact that uh, that the that the thinking that went on back then was in some ways vastly superior to the thinking that we have today. The food that we're getting now isn't cooked. Mm-hmm. Well, but it's such a long history. I would say back in the ancient, ancient times, yes, I could agree. But I think that consciousness has gone through this kind of wave of up and down and up and down. And um, there are a lot of things that that I think Today, we are more conscious than we were back even a few hundred years ago when it was just solve it with a sword, you know, lift your sword and go for it. I think there is a movement in in great mass to, you see peace meditations going on. You see a movement towards solving things through consciousness as opposed to uh dominance. And I'm not saying that those models still don't exist, but I do see a movement here, a movement of energy, of consciousness moving to reveal itself. I don't, I, I don't think I could totally say that we are just as we were. Mm. Well, I, I'm just talking about the individual human being. I'm not necessarily mm-hmm. talking about a culture. Mm-hmm. Now, how are we defining who, quote unquote, we were? Mm. The fact is that genetically, although, you know, there is epigenetics that say that genes go on and off all the time. Mm-hmm. For the most part, you know, people today, if they, you know, if you took someone from a baby from the ancient world and you raised them today, they would be very similar to the people we have now, right? <laughs> because mm-hmm. uh, that those infants are, imp- imp- you know, imp- imprinted with the particular biases and uh, benefits of the cultures that they grow up in, right? And we have a lot more spiritual freedom now than, you know, in some respects than we ever had mm-hmm. before, which is a positive thing, right? Mm-hmm. And and as, Bohr, as uh, Niels Bohr pointed out, now Niels Bohr was another Nobel Prize winner. He was uh, an absolutely uh, central figure in 20th century 
uh, quantum mechanics. He was born in 1885. And his uh, father was a professor of uh, medicine at Copenhagen University. And he founded uh, you know, the Copenhagen School of Quantum Mechanics. And he was also one of the early pioneers in quantum theory. He was the one that figured out that the, the electrons could spin around the hydrogen or the electron could spin around the hydrogen atom without losing momentum. Uh, and uh, that was an incredible breakthrough, uh, the Bohr model, even though it only applied to uh, the simplest element, which was hydrogen. But he also was very, very concerned about um, uh, about people's, you know, the, the beginning of the uh, revolutionary era that, you know, out with the old, in with the new. And he, in fact, said that the fact that religions through the ages have spoken in images, parables and paradoxes means simply that there are no other ways of grasping the reality to which they refer. But mm -hmm. that does not mean that it's not a genuine reality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So for in his mind, you know, the idea that, uh, that in images, parables and paradoxes, you know, uh, are in, unacceptable to scientists, even though if you look at quantum physics, there's, you know, infinities come out in quantum mechanics all over the place. You, you, you do these calculations and you get infinities, which are, you know, illogical. You know, you do this calculation and the waveform comes up with this and here's this infinity that shows up, you know, which is like, you know, you go down the equation, you get the end of it and there's God. Right. <laughs> right. And so you get these infinities. And what they did is they created this thing called renormalization, which is a way of taking these infinities and, and getting usable results. Right. So even in that particular realm, you see the that, you know, that, you know, God intrudes even, you know, the concept of the infinite or the divine or the higher consciousness intrudes, whether we like it or not. Right. <laughs> Right. So, um, so, you know, Bohr also was very, very uh, interested in, um, uh, in the, in the problem that we bring our biases to science, right? That was another thing that he was really concerned with. And he, he, he was very concerned that we, we understand that we're bringing our spiritual structures consciously or unconsciously, even when we feel like we're being independent, these things are, you know, are, you know, intruding into, uh, into the work. And thank God that God intrudes. Well, <laughs> yes, but what they need to be brought to the fourth, like, 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 uh, David Bohm said, you know, we have to, you know, uh, recognize that, that there's this, uh, process of thought taking place, right? Mm -hmm. And understanding that that our spiritual structures are part of that thought, even if we're not aware of them, right? Okay. And he said, you know, the relationship between critical thought and spiritual content of a given religion and action based on the deliberate acceptance of that content is not in opposition to science. It's complementary. Right. Well, you know, when I think of the religions, I always think of the heart energy, and I'm wondering how does that fit in with what David Bohm, with with a scientific perspective on heart energy, how does that play in there? Play into what respect? Well, so the the models that we've seen in science have tended to be very linear in certain ways and it seems like when the leaps are made it's when there is this um like a revelation and yeah and and i and and it feels like it's like a really you know when i think of doing when i was doing art it was actually really heart energy bursting through, coming forward. It was passionate. It wasn't just a, a linear kind of cool mental energy. It well, was passionate energy. Yeah, to your, to your point, I mean, if you look at the list of scientists that we're going to be talking about tonight, all of them, uh, uh, except for Kurt Gödel, all of them are Nobel Prize winners. So all of these scientists are saying that there's a metaphysics, there's a spirituality, there's a energy, a spirit. There is this animation of reality that happens that cannot be explained with science, right? So all of the best scientists are doing this already. Mm 
because those are the ones who are winning the Nobel Prizes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they're even, even in the modern realm, you know, someone who's, uh, you know, the, the discoverer of plutonium was uh, Glenn Seaborg. And he became the chancellor in 1958 of UC Berkeley. And he was uh, very, very interested in making sure that people didn't become too narrowly focused. He, he thought that there was great beauty in discovery. And he said that there's mathematics and music, a kinship of science and poetry in the description of nature, an exquisite form in a molecule. Attempts to place different disciplines in different camps are revealed as artificial in the face of the unity of knowledge. All literate people are sustained by the philosopher, by the historian, the political analyst, the economist, the scientist, the poet, the artisan, and the musician. So we're all on this great journey, and but we need to be able to use all of the tools when we're practicing science. And we need to use all we need to use all of the the legitimate results of science in our interpretation of religion. You know, uh, you know, I think it took 400 years for the Catholic Church to apologize to Galileo. I think that was something of an oversight. <laughs> you think? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> so. So, but you know, there, there's just a, a panoply of these Nobel Prize winning scientists that are all saying essentially, you know, different slices of the same pie, right? And, you know, even Max Planck, who was the, you know, sort of the, the, the seminal scientist in the, the discovery of quantum mechanics, he, his uh, work basically determined that when you heat a, an oven, a black oven, that the temperature changes in discrete uh, bands. You know, it goes from black to deep red to orange. It goes to basically the colors of the rainbow, all to the point where it gets to white. And he said that the only way this could happen is if there's a quanta of energy that makes these different energy levels discrete. And so he was basically the creator of the whole quantum uh, quantum realm mm-hmm. and he had a lot of things to say about religion you know he said that you know that productive science isn't based on pure logic but rather on what he described as a metaphysical hypothesis that no rules of logic can refute that there exists an outer world which is entirely independent of ourselves it is only through the immediate dictate of our consciousness that we know that this world exists. And for that reason, consciousness may be to a certain degree be called itself a special sense. So uh, we're coming up on the top of the hour. I just want to let everyone know we're listening to the other side of midnight. And after, we'll be coming with Walton Jenkins and Richard Lambert.
of 19.5ers. This is Chris, your friendly neighborhood, other side of the midnight podcast creator. I wanted to pop in right quick to tell you about the new club perk we just set up this week. We've got a new live chat server. We set up our very own Discord chat server this week so all of you can get together and chat with each other and to Richard and the bridge crew. What I hope you will enjoy and take advantage of is the fact that now you will be able to ask your questions of the guest during the live show if you don't want to call in. I know I've had a question or two in the past, and well, if I made it up to the 2 a.m. hour, I just didn't want to be on the radio since I was shy. So we have a chat channel just for guest questions. And if you find it hard to stay up at all for the show, but have a question you would like asked, then go ahead and post it to the channel. Questions will be read out to the guest for you, so you will get your answer as time permits. You're welcome to join the chat server at any time. To find the link to the server, please go to theothersideofmidnight.com and click on the Club 19.5 Member Benefits link in the left column. Be sure to log in first. You'll find the link to the chat server information page there. It's important that you follow the directions on that page so I'll be able to get you into the Club 19.5 group as soon as possible. You see, only Club 19.5 members have access to your special chat channels, so I will be verifying everyone that comes in to be sure you are a member. Otherwise, you'll get stuck in the Red Shirts group, and we all know what happens to the Red Shirts in Star Trek, don't we? So don't be a Red Shirt. The chat server runs on anything. If you're connected to the internet, you can access the chat server. So join us all in the server and let's get the other side of Midnight Community together and chat. But wait, you say you aren't a member of Club 19.5? No problem. Click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left column on the other side of midnight.com. And we'll see you there. for listening to this exciting first hour now the second and third hour of the show is available to club 19.5 members only please support the show by subscribing to club 19.5 and join our very interesting community to do that please visit the website the other side of midnight.com and click on the join club 19.5 link in the left hand column as a club 19.5 member you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll have access to a private chat server that member used to chat about the show during the show, and you will have a direct channel to post a question that will be read on the air to the guest. And you'll have a place to post questions during our open hailing frequencies. We realize that not everyone wants to call in live, and this gives you an easy way to participate in a live show without having to participate. Club 19.5 members can use this private chat to talk about the shows, ask questions, suggest new guests, and I may even pop on from time to time to answer specific questions. Also, the entire bridge crew is in these participating chat channels, so you can interact with them as well. You'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward, and boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>